there, and welcome to another episode of the Learning Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Cobb, and Learning Revolution is the podcast for anyone interested in building a wildly successful education, training, or lifelong learning business. As anyone paying even the slightest attention to the world of learning and education over the past several years knows, we are in a time of tremendous change and innovation. That's why I'm thrilled to be talking today with a bona fide, dyed-in-the-wool expert in both change and innovation. Seth Kahn is a well-known thought leader, consultant, and author of the best-selling book, Getting Change Right. He also has a new book on the way soon, Getting Innovation Right, How Leaders Create Inflection Points That Drive Success in the Marketplace. People like best-selling author Dan Pink are already giving it a big thumbs up, and later in the podcast, I'll tell you about how you can get some preview goodies for it. You will also, of course, be able to get that information at the show notes for this episode at learningrevolution.net slash episode 10. Anyway, Seth and I covered topics like why change is often so hard, the incredibly important role of value in today's business landscape, and some key ways that you can make innovation happen. These are the kinds of insights that are absolutely vital to the serious learning revolutionary. Before we roll into the interview, though, I did want to note that we are at really kind of a turning point here on the podcast. This is officially the last interview I recorded while writing the book, Leading the Learning Revolution. That, however, does not mean that the podcast is going to end. Far from it. I plan to keep broadcasting on a weekly basis, and I've already got some great new material lined up. Next time around, I'll be chatting with Harold Stolovich, who is the co-author of Telling Ain't Training, which, for my money, is, is one of the books that really absolutely has to be on the shelf of anyone who's serious about delivering high-value education experiences. I have other interviews lined up beyond that, but one thing I really want to make sure to do is to get your input. What questions do you have? What issues would you like to see me tackle? Who would you like to see on the show? To help it make it easy to provide that kind of input, I've recently installed a great tool called SpeakPipe on the Learning Revolution website. Just go to learningrevolution.net and you will see a send voicemail option over to the right side of the page. Just click on that and you'll have the option to record a voicemail right into your computer and then just zip that off to me. One thing I'm hoping to do going forward is to feature questions from listeners on the show. Um, So if you do that, if you record a voicemail question and and send it to me, uh, I may include that in the show. And of course, I'll also include a link to your website. So uh, perhaps a way to get a little bit of additional web juice going for your business. So please consider giving me a call. In the meantime, let's get going on the interview with Seth Kahn. I am pleased to be joined today by best-selling author and widely respected expert on change and innovation, Seth Kahn. Welcome, Seth. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I really appreciate your taking some time to talk today. As you know, I'm looking at the world of education, where there has certainly been a tremendous amount of change and innovation over the past several years. And knowing that you're an expert in both of those areas, change and innovation, I really welcome the opportunity to tap your brain a little bit. Now, one of the things that I've noticed as I've been looking at what's happening out there in, in this phase of change is that a lot of the most interesting things are coming from people who really aren't educators. They're coming from other spaces entirely sometimes, like small businesses or solo entrepreneurs. 
or in cases where educators are leading the charge, they seem to be leaving their institutions behind to do whatever they're doing. From your perspective, is there something about traditional organizations that just doesn't like change and innovation? Um, I think that there are uh, at least two different kinds of uh, cultures that out there. One of them is really uh, an operations culture, and operations is really about delivering a service or product and maximizing efficiencies, bringing costs down, um, and, uh, and you know carrying out the day-to-day activities that are required and, and really fine-tuning those so that there's the least amount of uh, investment required for the maximum amount of return. Then there are innovation cultures, and innovation cultures are really about um, expanding upon value, finding new niches for value, in, improving value by delivering more value for, for less investment or enhancing the value by uh, intensifying it or creating further application for it. Um, or, uh, or strengthening it in some way. So you see these two different kinds of cultures. And in, in some organizations, uh, it's very clear which is which, and there's actually a very conscious decision. Uh, uh, you know, to, for example, I think of Walt Disney World and I think of the resort communities. And when people have Disney, have Orlando as a destination, there is uh, uh, an organization that is all about delivering that family's experience. It's very much operational, but when they want to build a new ride or put together a new theme park, they bring in the Imagineers from California, and they're all about innovation. So there is, I see, like a bifurcation between the two kinds of cultures. And so if you're a small organization or individual expert, a solo entrepreneur, because a lot of the folks that might be listening probably fall into one of those camps, how do you cultivate both of those within your work, particularly when you've got limited resources to work with? Well, you need to make a conscious decision uh, to to build both of those. And uh, a lot of times what you end up with in a small organization is you have a leader who has a proclivity for one or the other, but you really do need both. Uh, and so then you have to ask the question, who is, uh, who's it best to deliver or to execute on these? And it's not always – sometimes the personality type will drive who you would choose depending on which, which you are doing. And as far as the innovation side of the equation goes, whether that's coming from an innovative leader or somewhere else in the organization, where do you see concepts like testing and experimentation fit in? Do organizations need to be constantly testing and experimenting, or is that a distraction from your perspective? No, I think, I think it's all about value generation, and I think uh, you do have to experiment with what works uh, what increases the value and uh, and what you get traction for? I think that there there you know there's a constant effort to um, to generate more value. Value is really the holy grail when it when it comes to organizational success. So in terms of generating that value, I know we both subscribe to the idea that you have to prove value first before you can really expect a prospect or customer to to pay significantly for whatever you're offering. When you're talking about educational organizations, how do you see the role of free coming into play now? I ask that because I think a lot of organizations feel like they they need to innovate. Uh, They're feeling fearful about what they're seeing out there, but they're also dealing with the idea that there's a lot of free intellectual property out there that they're having to face up against. And that's a big change for them. How are you seeing that factor into the way that folks do business now? Well, first of all, there's a lot of fear out there in general. Um, in every sector, so it's not just in education. Um, 
again, I've come back to this idea of value generation. There, there are really three primary ways that you can generate value, and this applies equally to education. One is to create more value. The other is to create better value. And the third is to find untapped value and to free it up. When you're talking about giving away things free, you're really in the more value phase, which is uh, more, more is there's three ways that you can create more value. One is that you can decrease the investment that your customer pays and provide the same, which is what free is. You've decreased it as far as it can go. The other is to keep the investment the same and get more value. And in, in, in that way, you, you might have an existing service, but then you heap things onto it that you do not charge for. So the investment doesn't change for the customer, but the value increases. And of course, the third is just a combination of the two. So what we're seeing in, in our current market is people doing that and using the new technology, the new tools, the new access to intellectual property and knowledge uh, and, and leveraging it where it can be leveraged to generate more value by providing things for free. So I encourage education folks to jump into the game and figure out um, you know, who's, who's making use of it and how they can make use of it themselves. And so what about how that evolves over time? I mean, it seems to me that you have to make this effort to demonstrate value, but that ultimately that culminates in a transaction, or at least you hope it does, that the customer actually pays for something. But then there's generally a gap. So for example, someone pays to attend a course or a conference, and then it may be a while before they're going to pay for something else. It, it seems to me you have to fill those gaps between transactions with value. You, you have to keep giving but I feel like a lot of organizations forget that and they may end up losing customers that they really worked hard to get in the first place. Yeah, the, the financial remuneration is a transaction that takes place. And as you, you know, if you can, just as you've uh, envisioned it, if you think of those transactions taking place as a pulse and then in, in the interim, there's an opportunity for additional value to be generated. Um, I think that if you don't do what you're talking about, you'll end up being commoditized. Now, and that's, uh, I mean, th when you get into the commoditization game, then you really get into scale and efficiencies, and you really have to be a giant in order to be successful. Building on your point about commoditization, do you feel like there's really any room at this point for price innovation on the low end? Or should most organizations be looking for not only how they can sustain price, but in what ways they might actually be able to put some higher value and higher priced offerings out into their marketplace? Yeah, those higher price, those higher value things are the things that are going to differentiate them in the market. If, if all they're doing is playing with the price at the low end, then they're headed towards commoditization. And the only way that you can really you know, generate the kind of profits that you need is really to operate on a much larger scale. So if you're a small organization, I think you're pretty much forced to go the value route. Hmm. So then what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities for creating value? And specifically, to the extent you feel like you can speak to it, what do you see as key opportunities creating new value in the education marketplace? Well, there's a, there's a lot of really large opportunities. And one of the things that's so exciting about today's marketplace is that we're really limited only by the imagination. Um, I'll give you uh, an example of just four. Uh, one is what I'd call never-before-exploited synergies, where you have uh, the, the possibility of partnering or putting your product or service in combination with another product or service that was previously impossible. 
um, or, or the cost of doing it was prohibitive and now it's easy to do it. Um, so for example, if, you, if you're an education provider, um, there, there are tools now that are available over the internet for free that you can couple your work with. I've seen people, for example, put together resource uh, pages on, on the web or include them in documentation uh, to lead people to what used to be considered avant-garde but are now established resources like Wikipedia. Um, another thing is uh, what I would call the emergent properties of novel combinations. When you bring things together that have never been together before, um, there start to be uh, new ways of using them, new, new, new qualities that emerge in the marketplace, and I see people harvesting those. Um, uh, an example of that would be uh, putting together uh, a learning, learning tool or a learning set uh, you know, with apps on an iPhone and then being able to carry that, those apps into a particular work situation where they can be put to use in real time. Um, another is uh, the desire to improve bad customer experience. That always drives people and there's still a great dearth of, of quality customer experience out there. And when I talk about customer experience, I'm really talking about uh, a multi-stage journey. Every time the customer interfaces with a particular company, I'm not just talking about the point of a financial transaction. And there are, uh, in fact, I've mapped out in some of my work 11 different stages that a customer goes through in interfacing with, uh, with a particular organization. And at every one of those, there's an opportunity for a high level of quality experience. And uh, many organizations are still very much involved in what I would call um, customer service, which is responding to a problem that has arisen after the adoption of the product or service. That's only one of the touch points. There's 10 other touch points, and people who are paying attention to that typically tend to be leaders in their field. And, and the, last, the last one I would raise, and there's, and there's many more than these four, these are just four I'm picking out, are changing market trends. So we're in an economy uh, that's moving all around us, and there are things that are surging, things that are ebbing, uh, and if you think of your product or service in relation to that shift, um, different aspects of it are emphasized. For example, um, I, I know of a company that was providing education um, to uh, real estate uh, uh, salespeople in Florida, and when the market tanked, uh, all of suddenly all of their customers were out of a job. 100% of them were out of a job. They had no customer base, but actually they did have connections to the individuals that they'd been serving, even though they were no longer buying real estate supplies or coming to real estate classes. And so they quickly mobilized and began teaching classes that were uh, provided techniques for those very same people to generate income while they were going through the gap. And as a result, they held on to their entire customer base through the drop in the market. Um, so, you know, someone who at one point was providing real estate education, suddenly the real estate disappears and you ask, well, what asset do I have? And the asset that you have is that you have the connection with your customer base and you have the ability to deliver education. But the content changed 180 degrees. Um, so you have to always look at what it is that you're providing in the context of the market trends that are around you. So those are just four. Right. It sounds like in that last example, the company was able to focus in and, and figure out what kind of value they were delivering and, and then figure out a way to deliver new value. And that doesn't always seem to happen. People sometimes miss that things are sitting right there in front of them or they don't find the hidden opportunities. What are some of your key tips for discovering those opportunities where you can provide additional value or find the hidden value? 
Well, um, one of the things to do is to bring in some, bring in an expert, somebody who really understands that. And there's um, there's two different ways that you can do that. You know, you can hire a new employee who understands business growth and strategy and business intelligence, or you can bring in a consultant. And there's pros and cons to both of those. The the advantage of bringing an employee in is that you are importing expertise inside the organization, and then you have the ability to tap that at all different levels of the organization. Uh, the disadvantage is that you then, uh, you know, within a consultant, it's a finite engagement, you have a fixed fee, a fixed cap on the amount that you're going to spend, and you can direct that person's attention towards a very particular thing. But you do need to bring in an expert either way who understands business growth and can examine your organization. And, and then, you know, one of the first steps that I always recommend is conducting um, competitive business intelligence, where you're looking at both the internal assets uh, and obstacles as well as the market opportunities and challenges and taking the assets of the organization and asking how they can be best applied for growth in the current conditions. Um, so that's a, that's a wonderful way to, to determine where, where there's opportunities. Mm, right. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, but I also find that even with an expert involved, a lot of organizations are just really stuck in their old ways of thinking. They've been doing it a certain way for a very long time. So change is hard, innovation feels hard. If you were going to tell those sorts of organizations just the the one thing to focus on to help get that first movement towards what they need, what's some typical advice that you might give to, to that type of organization? Uh, the leaders have to become experts in reframing and strategy. They have to they have they have to be able to shift their basic orientation inside the organization and then create uh, a plan of action that will lead them towards their goal. So, just I'll give you for example just four different ways that you can reframe what it is that you're doing. One is to go really large on data to gather together as much as you can put your hands on and look for patterns. Another would be to aggregate customers at a different scale than you normally do. Look for indicators, trends, and anomalies uh, among greater and greater groups than you normally operate with, as well as in micro-niches. And then you can go outside your own reach and uh, look at things like, for example, the entire sector, the entire industry, the country, or even the planet, and then at the same time drill down to individual needs, localities, even personality types. And, and by, by going wide and, 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 and going deep like that, you are, avail yourself of different ways of understanding your business. Um, just two others, you can disassemble prefabricated ingredients. A lot of times people deliver things that come packaged, and if you take the pieces apart and ask yourself if you could do a better job of a particular aspect of it, sometimes you can put together the basic building blocks in a new way where you can really add value. And the, the last thing I would say, and this is a, to me this is a fun exercise, is to become your competition. Um, take a day, take your senior team, take your senior strategist together, uh, go off-site, and, uh, and, and go out to, to win over every single one of your customers. Ask the question, if you were going to be taking your customers away from you, what would you do? And go after all the weak points in your organization, and look for the exciting stuff that will lure people away. And then, of course, spend the, the latter part of that session asking, so how do we fortify ourselves against that kind of an attack, and how do we integrate what we learn so that we can actually provide that kind of value to the existing customer base? I love that suggestion. I, I do always tell clients to look at the competition, but I, I like that idea of really role-playing it out and, and becoming the competition. That, that's very useful. Well, Seth, I, I really appreciate your taking some time to talk today. Uh, I know you're working on a new book that we should be expecting out soon, and um, I'm certainly looking forward to that. Any final words of wisdom or advice that you would share with folks in the educational space? 
Yeah, I think that education is uh, one of the most important things that we offer uh, people. I think that the opportunity for uh, personal and professional development is what makes it possible for us to grow as a civilization. It's what makes it possible for us to grow as a country, even even in, as a family and with the individuals that we love and care most deeply about, whether they're children or adults. So I think that innovation in the education space is extremely important, um, and it's really important that we get it right so that we can take care of the people we love and help them grow into strong and robust contributors as well as our, the, the folks who run our organization so that we can r remain on the, on the cusp of, of uh, development and growth as a, as a nation, as a, as a company, as an organization, and even in the uh, professional societies that we belong to. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights on how to do that. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for calling, Jeff. That wraps up my interview with Seth Kahn. You can find Seth on the web at www.visionaryleadership.com. And not only will you be able to get more information about Seth there, but you'll also find uh, easy links to things like his books or to his regular columns in places like Fast Company. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I would provide some information about preview goodies for Seth's new book, Getting Innovation Right. Those goodies include uh, invitations to participate in two teleseminars on innovation and links to the recordings for those teleseminars. It also includes a special PDF workbook that's based upon material in the book. And this content is completely new, original, and, and it's not available in the book. So this is really the only way to get it. Um, if you want to get those preview goodies, all you have to do is go purchase the book. You can get it in the usual places like amazon.com. Just uh, search on getting innovation right. And once you've got uh, your receipt from that, just forward that to giradvance at gmail.com, and Seth will make sure that you get those uh, preview goodies for your pre-order of the book. You can also, of course, get all of that information, the links to purchase the book, the email address, and everything else in the show notes for this episode of the Learning Revolution podcast. To get that, just go to learningrevolution.net slash episode 10. As we're wrapping up, I'd like to say that I am truly grateful for you taking the time to join me here on the podcast. And again, if you enjoy the podcast, it would be a really big help to me, and I would be forever grateful if you would consider doing a brief review of it uh, on iTunes. All you have to do is go to learningrevolution.net slash iTunes, and that will put you on the path to where you can do a quick review or, or even just give it some rating stars, and then hopefully you think it's worthy of five stars. That would be a big help. That's it for this show. This is Jeff Cobb signing off from the revolution. Mm -hmm.